And Tuba Shvar is a very, very fascinating yontif. Swarm talk about that. What happens on Tuba Shvat? On the exterior, nothing happens. You can't see anything. Somewhere down, deep in the ground, there's a sapling, there's a seed which is starting to begin to sprout. And eventually, one day, it's going to break through. And we celebrate. Like a yantif out of Tubishvat. Baruch Hashem, we're getting together, we're celebrating Tubishvat. Very strange yantif that nothing's happening. Nothing has happened yet. Tubishvat is a celebration of potential, of what's going to come. Well, it started already. That seed already is beginning. It started to really sprout on a small level, on the beginning. We didn't have the kayak to see something which is so small and already see the tree which is going to come out of it. And if you saw Mayor saw that in Roselawn. If Mayor saw that in Roselawn. They saw something which is right now just a seed. It's a seed. And it's Bezer Hashem going to grow into an incredible Elon. But it takes Chashv Yidin to see a seed and see an Elon out of that. And that's really what we're, we're celebrating tonight, the seeing of the seed and the seeing of the Elon at the same time. I, I would imagine, I could be wrong about this, but it's possible that the Beisov will be turning over in his grave if he knew a Tish was taking place in Roslaw. It's very possible. <laughs> very possible. It's the ultimate Litvak. I'm not sure if it like fit. So I think that was, that was really the Haschola. We're being, we're being, I don't want to say being Megayer, I'm saying, but whatever, whatever word we can use, making a Shini Hashem, Shini Amakim, Shini and Baruch Hashem. But the truth is, it's Malam B'Kedish. I think the, the Nachas that certainly Resilva would have, it's, it's Malam B'Kedish. It's only Malam B'Kedish. And the truth is, I think back to when Silva came right, many, many moons ago, came in 1931, I believe, and there was nothing here in Cincinnati, or there was the beginning of things in Cincinnati, and he grew it and grew it and grew it. The taka was, the Seif Yamov was, they say, a shit of 400 people on Shabbos. And then there was somewhat of a downturn in Baruch Hashem. It's been, and that's only through people who could see seeds and see greatness inside of them. And the truth is that the Yantar Tubisha really is all of us, both in ourselves, in our children, to be able to see from seeds to see greatness. And the Yantif, we celebrate that. We celebrate the ability to do that. And Halvai, we should be able to always have that schus, that ability, to always see that from that. L'chaim, L'chaim. Shemir Eli made a special asterisk the curve, those who want to taste it. Make L'chaim on that. L'chaim, Rochatoan, you know you. Fine. Whoa. Strong. It's to have with. It's to have everybody here with us. He's a person who I just begin to get to know, and it sounds like every part of the story is beyond fascinating. And he's to share with us both some aspects of his own journey and the chizik that we can take from that. It's that you came down here, special to cover this. Fish above and um, fish above. It's too much fun. It's going to yeah, make the fish above coming out. So it's, it's, it's a liqueur. It's just one, one, drop, one drop of this, and now your mouth turns you over. Yeah. Especially me. And uh, send the special cover this too much fat tish, and for joining to Machabich, both the Resilk, Resorl, and the Gans and Maimid that the Resilk is having nachas from. Without further ado. It's. Um, 
I'm speechless to be sitting in uh, in such a venue. It it brings me back to the day in Hong Kong where I lived from 92 to 05. It was a very small, you could call out of town community, slightly out of town, out of continent actually. But uh, I look back at it as a wonderful 13 years. Um, you know, you can compare and contrast Hong Kong and Borough Park. And uh, what we tried to do in Hong Kong was to create what we could in, in our own house. And I'm sure that you'll have a ton of Hatzlacha in this house. And, uh, and the block and the blocks around it should turn from your efforts and, and the others' efforts into a little borough park right here in Cincinnati. <laughs> right. without is, that, the, is that a brothel? Without the, without the, without the, without the, <laughs> the sanitation and the noise and the buses. I'll take it. Um, I should always have parking. Exactly. <laughs> you already have a chandelier. So we, uh, it's it's the hour is not early, and uh, as many of you I think can hear, I'm struggling a little bit with my with my voice and my congestion. Um, I thought I would I would give you a little bit of an abbreviated version um, of my journey. With, uh, with particular relevance to a milestone um, that I achieved a couple of months ago, Baruch Hashem, which was to publish, have the schist to publish um, through Art Scroll, uh, a complete English translation of the Kedushas Levi. And uh, what I wanted to do was to talk a little bit about my, my career, um, but really to use my career to talk about, um, to use my career as a little bit of a springboard to talk about a couple of spiritual elements. What, what, what pushed me along over the 30 years of my career until now, and, and what Hemshech that has with uh, the 30 years of my work on the Kedushas Levi. That's basically what I wanted to talk about, and I will give you the, uh, the Reader's Digest version because I don't know that everybody would be able to survive the longer version. <laughs> it's a weeknight. It's a school night, right? <laughs> um, from a winter break. So. Right, air of winter break. So let me, let me start with the, with the end first uh, on the career side. Um, as many of you may know, I, I'm a lawyer. I practiced law before going into government for 30 years. Um, I spent 20 of those years at a, at a very large global law firm called Allen and & Overy. And in 2017, I was asked to join the Treasury Department, the senior leadership of the Treasury Department. And I wanted to start, I wanted to start by telling everybody what I did at the Treasury Department and then work backwards from there because the, the end brings relevance to the, to the 30 years. So I had the SIS to be um, nominated by the president, by President Trump, and confirmed by the Senate um, to a position. It's a statutory position, which is called the Assistant Secretary for International Markets of the U.S. Department of the Treasury. Um, it's, uh, it's not an easy process um, to be nominated. You, somebody has to put your name forward. You have to be vetted. The weather has to be good on the day that the president's considering it, and uh, 
if, if all of the stars are in line, then you get, there's an announcement, a, a formal announcement that comes out from the White House that X, Y, and Z is nominated for this position. Here's the person's background, so on and so forth. But that's really only the beginning because after that, you have to go through a, a very long confirmation process. M my process took nine months. I was acting in the position for about six or seven months of those nine months, but it was a nine-month process. There's further vetting. Um, there's further security checks. There's further financial and ethical reviews. And on the assumption that you pass all of that, you get put forward to the committee within the Senate that looks after your subject area. Mine was the Senate Banking Committee. And... Uh, at some point, if again the stars are in line, you'll you get a hearing date. Um, my hearing date took I don't know maybe six months. It's like uh, kind of like the bar exam, you know. You 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 get to make a statement for five minutes, and then the the committee can ask you whatever questions they want to ask you. So preparation was was more than a little bit nerve wracking, but I made it through. I was voted out of committee. I was confirmed, and I became assistant <coughs> secretary. So what does the assistant, the assistant secretary for international markets at Treasury do? That particular position <coughs> looks after all of the functional offices within international affairs at Treasury. So international affairs at Treasury carries out um, financial policy, for the United States on anything that is financial and internationally oriented. The, the regional side of the house is divided up into four different areas, five different areas, um, Asia, Africa, so on, and there are deputy assistant secretaries and another assistant secretary <coughs> that looks after that. My position looked after the, the functional offices, so that would be the Office of Trade, the Office of Technical Assistance, the Office, the Office of Investment, Energy, and Infrastructure, um, the Office of um, International Financial Markets. All in all, there were probably about 500 civil servants um, that, that worked in offices under me. And um, I, 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 I'd like to illustrate what the work was all about by running through a couple of the key milestones, maybe one per each of those offices. So trade, I'm sure you'll all remember the beginning of the Trump administration, it was a key, um, it was a key policy priority. Um, the president wanted to create and realize more of an even playing field between ourselves and our major trading partners. One of the key areas, regions of emphasis, countries of emphasis was China. So I participated as a senior negotiator in the phase one China trade talks. Um, I actually drafted the first, I prepared the first draft of the agreement that was put on the table with the Chinese. We negotiated over a period of, 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 of many months and, uh, and then we, we signed it and we started to implement it until, of course, COVID hit. But it was, a, it was a pretty big deal. It was meant to deal with, a, to address a $500 billion trade deficit. Um, 
and uh, interesting work. A lot of trips to China, a lot of hosting the Chinese in America, and a lot of uh, very pressured, protracted, nerve-wracking negotiations. Um, one other area that I looked after, which I was uh, uh, was an area of my expertise, was infrastructure. I actually um, formulated a policy where, for the first time, the U.S. government used, um, you asked me about project finance a little bit earlier, used um, a certain type of financing technique to partner with many of our um, emerging market country friends in the Western Hemisphere and in Asia to help them grow their economies through investment and finance of energy and infrastructure. So we ended up signing 13 agreements in this area in Latin America, seven in Asia. All in all, those agreements worked on about $600 billion of energy and infrastructure projects, all of which were designed to help our partner countries grow their economies, increase employment, create jobs, and provide opportunities for U.S. manufacturers to export, thereby creating jobs in America and creating investment opportunities for U.S. investors. Big program, very interesting, um, very exciting work. But probably the, the area that I'm most proud of is uh, an area that I, I had very little experience in before I went to Treasury. It had really no international elements to it, and it was an area of programming that I was gifted by the secretary who, by the by, you're going to like this, Rabbi, uh, Secretary Mnuchin is actually an einikel of the Bredichever. He's an einikel of Kedusha's Levy. Um, on March 27th of, uh, of 2020, I think you'll all be aware that the first CARES Act was passed and signed into law. Um, it was a two-plus trillion dollar um, series of programming. I was gifted um, the CARES Act programming to support the domestic airline industry. And uh, that programming initially was $76 billion that was to be provided in, in two, two different types of instruments. One was to enable the airlines to keep people employed through payroll support payments. And the other was um, a loan program to provide working capital and ongoing loans at a at, at certain level of subsidy so that the airlines could keep going. That programming um, grew into a $94 billion program. There was another $18 billion that was added in December of 2020. Um, we, were, we were able to actually implement all of the funding within the, the allocated time um, in order to support 700,000 jobs. So if you, if you do the math on, let's say, two to three persons for, per household, that works out roughly to two to three million people in the United States. So let's call it 1% of the population. At the end of the day, I kind of feel pretty good at being able to, to achieve that milestone. So um, what does all of this have to do with the, with the Caduceus Levy? 
and and what what possibly could we pull out of this that that has uh, an element of spirituality? And uh, I wanted to of of the the many many items that I could talk about. I just wanted to talk about. I just wanted to touch on on two very briefly. Um, one of them is the the issue of hashgacha, the issue of divine providence, and the other is is the issue of kiddush Hashem. So let's start with hashgacha. Um, I reckon that I spent five, six, seven minutes just now running through this litany of of jobs that I had at Treasury. Um, maybe it, it sounds interesting, maybe it sounds exciting. Um, to me, the most interesting aspect of it is how possibly could it have been that somebody from my background would have ended up in a position to be nominated by the president for the job that I did and to actually do the work that I just spoke about. And I see it as nothing less than extraordinary hashgacha, um, which falls into two different areas. And those are areas of, of expertise that I built up over a period of 30 years during my legal career. So the first area of expertise that I built up was that I, I became fluent um, in a language that at the time I started learning it was not a, a particularly popper, popular foreign language, um, which was Chinese. And uh, in high school, it happened that I, I had to go out to work uh, to help support my, my family, particularly to help my mother out. Very long story, very short, I ended up working in a Chinese restaurant. I started out working in the kitchen. I ended up graduating to become a busboy. I then was a waiter for about five years. And in the course of that work, I, in the first year, I would say, I picked up the lingo, as it were, recognizing that if I wanted to excel at my job, I needed to be able to interact with my colleagues in their native language. And by the second year, I became completely fluent in Chinese. I didn't learn until about the third or fourth year at this job that there was more than one form of Chinese. And the Chinese that I learned was Cantonese Chinese, a dialect spoken by 95, 96, 97% of the Chinese in America, but only less than 5% of the Chinese in China. So if I really wanted to have a interaction, travel to China, uh, be able to do something by way of career, I needed to learn Mandarin, which is the national dialect, the national language in China spoken by 97% of the population, but at the time only one or 2% of the population of the Chinese population in the US. How different are the dialects? They're, uh, Cantonese um, retains the most elements of archaic Chinese, and Mandarin is one of the most modern dialects. Mandarin has four tones, and Cantonese, depending on the subdialect, has between eight and 12 tones. What's the tone? Uh, the way that it's, it's a monosyllabic language, every word is one syllable, 
and every one syllable word has a tone that you pronounce it, which defines what the meaning of the word is. Like a trap. Call it a trap. A trap defines the word. Yeah. So, so to give you one example, in Mandarin, in Mandarin, the word cho, c h o u, you could say a cho, 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 cho. The difference in meaning. The, the difference in meaning could be um, to smoke a cigarette, to be worried. Um, or to smell, to, to stink. Depending how you say it? Depending on how you say it. So what's the food, General Chow? Huh? <laughs> that's, that's a different... Depends how you say it. <laughs> so I... Uh, they're, all, they're all tied together, though. Yeah. So you, smoke, once, you smoke when you're worried and you end up smelling. <laughs> so uh, once I understood that I needed to learn Mandarin, I had to go back to the drawing board and take a couple of additional classes. Over a period of time, I became fluent in Mandarin as well. It was the Mandarin that actually led me to the expertise that I built up as a lawyer in the era of energy and infrastructure finance because when I was a mid-level associate in New York, I had a headhunter call me one day to say that there was a, a major firm, very good firm, that was looking to recruit a Chinese-speaking associate to help them open their office that they were planning to open in Hong Kong. And the reason they were going to open in Hong Kong was because the firm specialized in a number of different areas, one of which was project finance. They did a lot of energy and infrastructure finance. Um, and China had just started in the uh, early 90s to open its market to foreign investment in energy and infrastructure. And so I took the interview. Um, I did pretty well on the, on the legal issues during the interview. I knocked it out of the park on the Chinese questions. When they asked me about my experience in energy, I told them, well, listen, I, I worked on one, one deal as a junior associate. I, I prepared a couple of the papers in this really big financing. But I got to tell you, I told the interviewer, that I've been dutifully paying my Con Ed bills for about eight years now. <laughs> so Akitzer, I got the job. And uh, over a period of 20 years, I ended up basically working on every conceivable size, shape, fuel technology of energy or infrastructure proje project that you can imagine in the world. And all of this, I view, happened either because of Hashgacha or because of happenstance. And we don't have the time tonight to go through all of the different steps that I went through. But if I were to give it to you in the fullest of its glory, I think that you would all agree with, with my take on it, that it was nothing short of hashgacha. How could it possibly be that a young Jewish boy that comes from the suburbs of Chicago would end up moving to Hong Kong and working for a law firm and then later picking up energy and infrastructure finance and it was China and energy and infrastructure that led the Trump administration's Treasury Department to actually make an offer to me because those were two priority 
agenda items of the administration from the beginning of the administration. So that is the, that's the hashgacha part of it. Let me speak a little bit about the, the Kiddush Hashem side. So my, my office used to be in the, the main treasury building. Um, that's at 15th in Pennsylvania. For those of you that are not aware, the Treasury Department is actually on the White House campus. You probably are all aware of the, the big white building that's actually at 15th in Pennsylvania, right? 1500. That's the White House, the White House, right? But on, on both sides of the White House, there are two very large buildings. One of them is the Eisenhower Executive Office Building, the EEOB, which is basically when, when you ask somebody where they work and they say the White House, they're basically working in the EEOB because there are very few offices in the West Wing. There are maybe 10, 10, 15 people that have offices in the West Wing. On the other side of the White House, <coughs> opposite from the EEOB, is the main Treasury Building. So... To get into the main treasury building, you have to go through a series of security <coughs> gates. The main one is shares the entrance that you would use if you were going into the east wing of the White House. It's the east gate. And I would pass through the east gate every day to go into work. That was the first security checkpoint. And then when you would get to the treasury building, main treasury when you would get to the entrance, you'd have to go through another security checkpoint. A little point of trivia that if you're a Senate-confirmed assistant secretary or above, you actually don't have to go through security when you get into the building. So I would skip the security after I was confirmed, and I would go straight up. But I would pass by 10, 20 Secret Service professionals when I went into the building every day. Um, I would pass by anybody ranging from the secretary to the deputy secretary, to any one of a number of assistant secretaries, deputy assistant secretaries, all the way down to the actual executive assistants and the janitors every day of the week. The way that Treasury and other government <coughs> agencies, federal government agencies work in setting policy is that um, the president will set an agenda item the person that looks after that particular subject matter area within the White House will convene a series of meetings that involve the agencies with equities to participate and give their input. And those meetings, which are called PCCs or sub-PCCs, will ultimately end up in a decision being taken, and then that decision will be implemented by the agencies that are involved. So in order for me to get my work done, if I had an idea on a policy that I wanted to implement that involved other agencies, I would regularly have to go to the White House, I would regularly have to advocate for my position, and then I would go back to Treasury. So I was, I was at the White House, at the EEOB, at the West Wing, in the Situation Room, one time, two times, three times, sometimes five times a week. Typically not more than four times a week because I went back to Borough Park every, front, every Thursday night, most weeks. But I was regularly in the White House. So why am I 
hocking on, canking on on this whole issue of secret service and going in the East Gate, um, participating in meetings at the White House. The reason is that every day that I went to work at the Treasury Department, I was dressed in a particular uniform. And my uniform that I wore is what you see me dressed in today as I sit here in Cincinnati. I wore a black suit, I wore a white shirt, I wore a tie, had my beard, mustache, glasses, and a black hat. This is how I dressed. This is how I went to work every day. I would take my hat off inside the building, and when I would walk over from Treasury to the White House, this is what I would be dressed in, and this is how I would go inside of the halls of the White House, EEOB, with my hat on. And I knew every day of the week that when I passed by the first security checkpoint, when I passed by the second security checkpoint, when I would pass by and say hello to Karen, who was the secretary's secretary, Secretary Mnuchin's secretary, when I would walk the halls of the White House, when I would be in the Situation Room advocating a position, I knew that all eyes were on me. And I knew that an eye movement of mine, a word that would come out of my mouth, a position that I would be advocating would be the difference between a Kiddush Hashem and a Chilul Hashem. So, Buch Hashem, I would like to say that I don't think I ever hit on any Chilul Hashems. I don't think so. There were more than a few times that people <coughs> told me in no uncertain terms, including in language that would not be appropriate for this crowd, that they didn't like what I had to say on my policy position, but that was my position. I would like to say that we hit a Kiddush Hashem all of the time. When the going got rough, I had to pull out the arsenal. And you'll know what I'm talking about, the arsenal, judging by your mother's song. Hello? Yeah? You know, every once in a while, you got to tell a good Jewish joke, no? Even if it's in the White House. So a few times we had to, we had to pull out a couple of good Jewish jokes, but it was the difference between the Kiddush Hashem and the Chilul Hashem. Um, that's what I'd like to tell you about my job. I, I have a, a whole segment of my story that deals with much deeper spiritual dimensions of, of this journey, Alpi Chasidis, which would probably take 45 minutes that I'm going in, in to, in a good instance, which I think I'm going to skip for tonight. Yeah? Um, maybe, maybe, we will, maybe we will get into one or two aspects after, after I, I stop for the moment. But um, what, I, what I did want to do, um, I wanted to do two other things. Uh, I wanted to tell a little, little Tupishvat story. I think it would be appropriate, yeah. But before I do that, I wanted to link up the, the, what I started with, with the Kedusha's Levy. Um, because in a way, the Kedusha's Levy, my work on it, um, is very much a parallel um, to, to my other journey. They were both 30-year journeys. My 30-year treasury journey was a pretty simple one. I went undergrad to Georgetown University, the School of Foreign Service. And um, the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown is a feeder for the State Department. When I was a, a junior, maybe a senior in, in college, um, 
I used to get asked and I used to spend all, almost all of my time thinking about what I was going to do after school. Um, you know, these days you ask people what they're going to do with their lives. So people like go to college and they collect degrees. I, I met a guy and he was on like his third PhD, a fellow that lived in my house. I used to have a house in Washington. When I was serving, there was a, a young fellow who came to do a, a, a postdoc internship at the Holocaust Museum. He was fluent in Yiddish. He studied Yiddish in university. He was doing a program. He was on his third PhD. So I said to him one day, I said, listen, so-and-so, what do you want to be when you grow up? Yeah. So um, when I was a junior or senior, I used to think about what, what I'm going to do after school. One of my mentors took care of the, the equation for me one day. I went to him and I said, Professor Robinson, what, 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 what should I do as my next step? So he said, well, maybe you should become a doctor. I said, Professor Robinson, I, uh, I didn't do pre-med. You know, I'm, I'm in a, the School of Foreign Service, not, no pre-med. Okay, and I, I'm not so good with blood. I, I later went on to become the Gabba of the Hebrew Kedisha for 13 years in Hong Kong, so we, we got over that one. So he said, okay, maybe you go to dental school. So I said, same issue, Professor Robinson. So he said, okay, you're going to law school. So I ended up going to law school. But um, many of my colleagues took the Foreign Service exam. And I thought about it. I thought about it, but then I didn't, I didn't have to think for too long, what's a nice Jewish boy going to do in, in, the, in the Foreign Service, in the State Department? You know, every, every person's first assignment is they send you out to Yenem's Eckbelt, and you work in the consular section giving out visas for two months. And then if you ever want to get anywhere in the State Department, you have to fight for another 18, 20 years before you get a rank, a particular rank. I figured, you know, not so much for me. I'll go to law school. I'll have a career. And then at the appropriate time, I will, I will seek out a political appointment. I'll go in later in life. So that was my, that was my 30-year story. It was, it was a 30-year story. It actually turned out how I had hoped it would but I really, I really did not anticipate that it happened as it, as it did and when it did. And there's a whole long hashkacha story behind that last, <coughs> the last link in the chain between my, my serving at my law firm and serving in government. But um, the Kedusha Slavi was also a 30-year a journey. Um, it was a journey that started in the summer of 1995. Uh, when I made a trip to the Ukraine, I had halished since I was young to go back and, and see where my grandfather was from. So I was born into a very not remarkable middle-class Jewish family in Chicago. Um, I've got a few years on the rabbi. It was a slightly different day in the suburbs of Chicago than what it is now. And... Uh, it was very, very homogeneous. I, I had no idea growing up that there were differences in ethnicity in, in this, that, and the other thing among Jews. I just thought everybody was Jewish. I had no, I had no clue um, that there were so many differences. And uh, 
I would always hear my, my grandfather speak about, about the Heim. He actually didn't speak too much about it because, as I gather, he had a very, very challenging childhood. Um, he was born in the shtetl of Nadvorna, and uh, his father was a, a cipher. His grandfather was a cipher. His great-grandfather was a cipher. And um, it was hard times. I, I know from his writings, they would sometimes have to beg for food. The way that they, they uh, played when they were children, my mother would tell me that her father told her that when they were kids, they would play with dolls, and the dolls were made out of straw and mud. This is what they had. And I, I related to my grandfather the way that I did. He was uh, all of 5'2 or 5'3 in height. But to me, he was a giant. Um, unbelievable Talmud Chacham. Very few svarim in his house. He didn't have much, but he had it all up here. And I, there was a mystique to the Heim. So I decided I'm going to make a trip to, to the Ukraine. And uh, Nadvorna is all the way in, in the west of, of the Ukraine. In those days, you could only fly into Kiev. These days, you could go to Budapest. It's a, it's a quicker drive. It's only three hours from Budapest. In those days, we had to start in Kiev. We, we made a couple of stops not far from Kiev in, in Nezhin and Gadic, where the, the uh, Balatanya, the first Lubavitcher Rebbe, and the Mittler Rebbe are buried. We went down to Mezhbezh. We went down to Berdichev. And then we made our way over to Nadvorna, Annapol, and then back to Kiev. On the first late afternoon of the trip, we arrived in Berdichev. And at the time, there was a rabbi there, Rabbi Shlomo Breuer. He was a square chusid. And he had been sent, this is in 1995, by the square rabbi to go to Berdichev and look after the shtetl. And he, he built a shul, he built a mikvah, he was there with his rabbitson. And uh, we went to visit with him. After that, he took us to the oil of the Berdichever. And it was a moving experience. When we walked in, there was really nothing in the room. There was the tzian. There were no seats. There were no shtenders. There was no nothing. There were a couple of svorim around Tehillim, basically Tehillim. And behind the tzion, which was n not, not on the wall, it was away from the wall, there was a little shelf with a, a glass jar that was filled about one-third with oil. And there was a wick. But the wick wasn't burning. So I tried to light the wick. And it was not easy to light the wick because there was no chair. The closest thing that you could you could let wedge against was the actual matseva. I wasn't going to be climbing on the matseva, and I tried every which way that you could imagine to try to get this wick lit. I had matches, yeah, and uh, of course everybody in the room that studied, I guess it's physics, would know that uh, maybe it's not physics. You'll have to tell me what area of science it is. A flame won't burn without oxygen. Combustion. And the wick was stuck on the, on the edge of the jar. 
and there was no oxygen. I would light it, and it would. There was no, there was no wire to hold the the wick in the middle of the jar away from the edges. So it kept on going out. And I'm sitting there, Laman Hashem, and there's no near neshama. I couldn't get it lit. So it bothered me. It bothered me. It bothered me. All the way until I got back to Hong Kong. Had numerous sessions with my therapist after I got back to Hong Kong. <laughs> that was a joke, Rabbi. <coughs> and I decided that if I can't, if I can't light the actual flame with fire of the Berticha Berub, that let me find some other way to keep the flame burning. So it was at the time that I decided that I really wanted to make available the Sefer of Nadvorna, Nadvorna Hasidus. I wanted to make it available in English. In the 90s, Art Scroll was, was starting, gaining steam. Feldheim was out there. Others were publishing new works in English, but there was very little available on Hasidus. So I figured, let me translate the Maimar Mordecai into English. So I, I organized a team of translators, and we translated the Maimar Mordecai, which is a relatively short safer. And we finished it, and I came to the realization that if I wanted to do a series of translations of Hasidus into English, I really needed to start out with a bang. So I came on the idea of why don't we do the Kedushas Levi and the Noi Meli Melech. So my team started both. Within six months, we had to abandon work on the Noi Meli Melech. It was just too hard. But we persevered on the Kedushas Levi. Within, I would say, five or seven years, we finished the translation. It was good, but it was not good enough for prime time. Um, I started work on it. I had to put it down for periods of time, so on and so forth. I would say in, in year maybe 10 or year 11, I approached Art Scroll. Rabbi Sherman told me that it was ganz good, but it, it really wasn't for them. Um, I continued to work on it. And when I took my position in Washington in 2017, I, I approached a very dear friend of mine, Howard Svee Friedman in Baltimore, who's on the board of Art Scroll, and who himself is Hasidish Gishdemt. He has uh, some Satmar blood, a little bit of uh, Kapichnitz. And I asked him if he wouldn't mind to approach the, the management of Art School on my behalf. And at that time, the translation was of a better quality. They agreed. Rabbi Sherman and Rabbi Zlatowicz agreed to publish um, the translation. And it took about another five or six years after that to bring it to fruition because there was still much more work to do in the translation, in the elucidation, the last year and a half was a killer because we were confronted with a number of very technical issues of typesetting and layout, but we finally made it. And, uh, and it was a very, very interesting and energizing 30-year journey. And there's one point that I wanted to 
to bring out on this particular, on the spiritual dimension of this third year journey. Um, and that is what, what kept me going for the whole time. I could have easily have given up. I could have easily parked it on my shelf. Xerox did, you know, done a, a, a quick binding of it and handed it out like what, what kept me going. And there are a number of answers to that question. But I wanted to focus on one very basic point, um, which relates to um, fatty beef and enriched spicy wine. And where do we find that in the Gemara? In Masech the Yuma. Rava comments that when he when he sees fatty beef and when he sees enriched spiced wine that the, the Reicha Vichamra, it's actually Chamira, the Lushan in Yuma, but this comes from Perik Zion and Sefer Tanya. I don't know why he says Reicha Vichamra, the Balatani writes Reicha Vichamra, the Lushan, the Gemara is slightly different. But what Rava says is that when he smells the wine, it, it enriches him. It, it arouses his senses. It gives him energy. And so what do we have to say or what do we think about a shtickel zaftige fleisch? And what do we have to say about a nice glass of wine? So one person would look at it and they would say, ooh, if we're talking about New York, maybe Le Marais or Reserve Cut, yeah? A nice, juicy, whatever it is, sirloin, yeah? Uh, and a nice glass of wine, red wine. To one person, they'll look at the steak and they'll say, <coughs> I'm going to scarf it down. And I'm going to guzzle down, I'm going to wash it down, I'm going to guzzle down the, the wine. But to another person that looks at the same two materialistic elements, they say that these two things can actually help me achieve more. And, and that is how we can take from the material and draw out and bring energy. And to me, it's a, this, this whole story, this whole couple of words in the Gemara, are, are, in my view, the best synthesis of how I can explain what kept me going. When I was practicing law and when I was at Treasury, the rabbi was speaking to me on the way over here that Cincinnati is very much a, a nine-to-five city. So I explained to him, when you're, when you're working as a lawyer and you're billing 2,000 hours a year in some of my my earlier years as, as an associate or a mid-level senior associate, I would bill even 3,000 hours a year. If you could do the math, 8,760 hours in a year, so subtract 3,000 plus a little bit more because that's only billable time. It's not the non-billable time. There's not much time left over to sleep and eat. But the hours were long, <coughs> and at a certain point, there's no tachlis to it. But the tachlis for me in working was that I could use the work as a means to an end. Yes, 
it was, it was enriching. Yes, it was fulfilling as a profession, but it brought me a very nice parnusa, and I was able to use that parnusa to support a family, to allow my kids to learn in the best of schools. And there were a couple of shkolem that were left over to help fund this project. And to do a project like the Caduceus Levy, which is three volumes, 2,000 pages, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a six digit, very high six digit budget over 30 years. And the, the money that came in was, was a very good partnership between the work work and the Kaidish work. And uh, to me, that, uh, that, is what, that is what kept me going. And we ended up with, uh, with a nice career that ultimately led to a, a good thing for, I believe, myself and for, for all of us. I, I don't know if you're aware, but there was quite a bit of press that I think was good for us around the time that I was confirmed. The, the press wrote that I was the, the first Hasidic Jew to be confirmed by the Senate, and uh, I don't know if it's true or not. Maybe there was a closet Hasid. Maybe there was a person that identified as being a Hasid that didn't say, that didn't say it out, but uh, there was quite a bit of press, and so I think that that was good. But for me, most importantly, the work really enabled me to, to bring a, a safer like the Caduceus Levy in, in English um, to, to people that wouldn't otherwise have access. So that's, that's what I wanted to say. I could speak about the Caduceus Levy. I could, uh, I could give a vort on the Caduceus Levy. I could say something on, on Tubishvat. I don't know. I don't know what the... And over the war on Tubishvat, yes. And over the war on Tubishvat. So let me, let me, uh, this is not a, this is not a vort from the... I don't know if Trump added Tubishvat. It could very well be. I was not there. How often were you there in the... In the Oval? In the Oval? Not very often. Not very often. He gets involved in these policies? Huh? 